Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. As the world focuses on the unfolding tragedy in Afghanistan after the Taliban retook the country last week, COVID fatalities are increasing as concerns of where we're going to be in a couple of weeks and months mounts. As of this taping, COVID has killed more than 628,000 Americans and about 4.4 million worldwide. TSA data shows a rapid slowdown in U.S. air travel. It's also trending down in Europe, and we've been talking about China softening for some time. How long does that decline last, and what impact is it going to have on the commercial aviation ecosystem, and what's next for Ultra, and we discuss the latest Skyborg news and more. Joining us as they do every week to discuss the week on world markets are Dr. Rocket Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, back in our New Jersey bureau, Sash Tusa of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners, who is back in London after a, a sojourn in Italy, and Richard Abalafi of the Teal Group Consultancy here in Washington, D.C., just right up the street from Defense and Aerospace Report headquarters. Uh, guys, thanks very much for joining us. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage. Uh, and we should point out that Huntington Ingalls Industries and GE Marine sponsored our coverage of the Navy League's recent sea airspace conference and trade show. And everybody, welcome back to the program. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks very much, Vago. Great to be here, as always. Absolutely, Vago. Thank you. An absolute pleasure having you uh, guys on. Uh, Sash, I want to get your feedback uh, from European travel, which uh, was not a very long trip, uh, but but was a pain in the butt. But first, I think we have to talk about Afghanistan uh, before we talk about air travel and, and uh, other news. Ron, uh, start us off on the week. Uh, Afghanistan is the big story of the week. Obviously, President Biden continues to be blasted at home uh, and abroad in the wake of the rapid collapse uh, of uh, Afghanistan uh, and the return of uh, the Taliban to control in Kabul. There are concerns uh, that in 2021 and beyond, uh, the Islamist group will again host al-Qaeda or its offshoots or another radical group that in turn will attack the United States and its allies again. Um, how did the aerospace and defense group in the wake of this news fare last week uh, on Wall Street? We got an, we got an update on Monday when Byron uh, and Dov Zakheim uh, joined us, but give us a sense how the week ended for the group. Yeah, so if, if you look at you know just broader markets and all the things that we tend to talk about, um, on concerns of slowing economic growth, we've seen fuel prices come down, you know, you know call it generic WTI crude prices. Hit a peak of around 75. Now they're back down to 62. Um, if you look at interest rates, they kind of hit a bottom, and they're actually starting to, to creep up a little bit. Um, so we're seeing, you know, some some interesting action there. When you look at the equities in the the US and group, um, you know, Boeing on the week was down almost 10%. Um, other commercial aerospace names were down. You know, call it anywhere from you know 150 basis points to a couple hundred basis points where the S&P for the week was down about 60 basis points. So, um, and then the defense names outperformed the S&P um, and, and commercial, but barely, right? I mean, the defense names were largely flat on the week, right? So um, it's unclear if the defense outperformance was because of Afghanistan or just because defense is largely seen as defensive 
when you know when the market gets a little jittery. Uh, maybe it was a little bit of both. Um, you know, I think investors are just starting to think about all right, you know, the second derivative effects. So you know, Afghanistan in and of itself isn't big to any of the defense contractors, or at least the ones that are publicly traded and the ones we cover. However, um, I think people are starting to wrap their heads around. So China's close to Pakistan. Pakistan's close to the Taliban. Hmm, what's that mean for the Belt and Road? So on and so forth. So are there maybe broader supply chain things that we need to think about when we think about this? And does this embolden China and the South China Sea? And then maybe what does that mean for submarines, naval stuff, space stuff, so on and so forth? But I think the market is just starting to start starting to think about that. Uh, I, I think it's an interesting week. There's this sense, uh, you know, among some in Asia that this is a positive step and the focus and attention of the United States will be uh, will, will be on uh, Asia. And that was obviously one of the important reasons that was propelling the administration, even if we can all agree that the execution, uh, to put it charitably, uh, you know, w- was wanting Um Sash, let me um, uh, let me let me bring you into this discussion because it's obviously been an extraordinary week. Uh, it was even more of an extraordinary week because the parliament, uh, in no uncertain terms, um, brutally criticized the prime minister Boris Johnson as well as uh, the president of the United States uh, for their uh, deplorable performance in F- in, in Afghanistan. Where does this leave the UK? Because the 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 passion and emotion that we're hearing from Ben Wallace, uh, your highly capable defense uh, secretary, um, a lot of questions about the reliability of the United States. This sense uh, that all allies have is, you know, the United States pulled us into this and and didn't really have much of a plan to get us out. Although I think there was this consensus view that the Afghans would hold out a lot longer than they ended up holding out. But if you're the UK, you have integrated your defense plans with the United States very, very intimately. And if there's discord in the relationship, then that's highly problematic. Bring us up to speed on, on where, where we are and what you were hearing also when you were in Italy. Yeah, okay. Um, so look, I, on Afghanistan, first of all, um, the, the parliament was recalled from summer recess, which is, uh, it's always uncomfortable for members of parliament when they get dragged back from the beach um, and they tend to come back in a fairly filthy mood, and they did. Um, and they criticised Boris Johnson very heavily and President Biden very heavily for two different reasons. Boris Johnson was criticised, along with his foreign secretary, Dominic Raab, and indeed a lot of members of government, for being either asleep or away on holiday and really not, you know, not gripping this crisis properly. Um, Boris Johnson is, you know, personally relatively casual uh, individual, and I think there was a lack of attention to detail and to what was going on in the um, Afghan debacle until very, very late indeed. Dominic Raab, the foreign secretary, stayed on holiday until you know two days after Kabul had fallen, um, and it's no good saying he could have done it all on Zoom. The fact is that wasn't happening. So the the, the personal criticism of the U- of members of the UK government was very, very cutting indeed, and it, it, you know, it, I mean. This happened at a time when pretty much every single senior civil servant was also on holiday. Uh, uh, So even if the UK could have done something, which personally I doubt, um, you know, in terms of military action or whatever, there was nobody of sufficient seniority in London to do it, which is very, very 
you know, worrying indeed. The criticism of President Biden and of America was of a different nature altogether. And it was basically about trust and about the nature of the British relationship. Um, it's very interesting that uh, Prime Minister Johnson and President Biden did not speak until very late in the crisis. Um, that might be because uh, Boris Johnson was not sufficiently animated in the whole process and didn't think it mattered. Um, but it might also be that his relationship with President Biden is not strong enough uh, to, you know, enable the, uh, him to pick up the phone and President Biden to receive the call uh, in, a, in a timely fashion. And there has a, been a huge amount of political, uh, of political comment in the higher quality uh, echelons of the British press about the degree to which when something like this happens, I, you know, when there is a strategic decision made by our absolutely most important ally, the UK is not just not consulted, but then there's, you know, there's no engagement with the UK going forward. If that's how the US is going to behave, and the US has every right to do that because the US has got to behave in the US's own interests. But if that's going to, if that's going to be how the US behaves, a lot of the assumptions of the UK's strategic uh, defence review are utterly invalid. And perhaps we've actually got to start thinking about what life is like when America is very you know, individualistic, go it alone, whatever you want to call it, rather than being a completely engaged, committed, involved ally. And, uh, you know, that, that's been something that's, that has, the commentary that has come from outside Parliament, but from inside Whitehall, civil servants and the military has in many respects been much more worrying because there really is concern that we might have made the wrong assumptions in our strategic uh, defence review, um, in most respects, than, than some of the stuff coming from the parliamentarians. Um, I should uh, point out that that is not the first time Boris Johnson has been criticised for not being a detail um, guy um, at, at, at the end of the day. The, and the, the, criticism, follow- the criticism is entirely justified, and it would be utterly wrong for anybody to sort of try to defend him on that. But there is a, you know, there is a bigger issue at stake as well. So then the the question for this is, right, I mean, if you if you listen, at least on the face of it, to what the administration had to say, we have been telling everybody that our plan is to exit um, and that we would be exiting. Um, You know, what is the specific lack of coordination that happened? Right. I mean, the United States has been, I think, very plain in terms of uh, and public in terms of what it wanted to do. If you listen to senior U.S. officials who may, you know, not being entirely candid, by the way, but what is the specific issue? Is it that we dragged everybody into this, then we decided to leave, and then we botched it and everybody got caught out, right? I mean, the United States has effectively not only made itself look bad, but it's made everybody else look bad because now it's a mad scramble to get your guys out. Was it collective faulty assumptions, um, right? I mean, I think that everybody who was there could see what the U.S. was doing and what it would cause. I mean, there were people who were talking about the collapse of um, the, the, the government many, many weeks ago was the, was the concern that this was going to happen. So I just wanted to see sort of what is specifically that's so animating, or, or is it that, look, we expected Donald Trump to make stupid decisions. The last person we expected really stupid decisions to come out of was Joe Biden. Well, that's a knee jerk, isn't it? But I mean, it's it's not entirely uh, unjustified. I think that um, it it was setting a, a date, 
setting a date that was very, very short term and not being prepared to discuss that date and the implications of that date with your allies and not being prepared to uh, put in place contingency plans for if the withdrawal turned out to be a rout, but just saying, we're going to keep on doing this, we're going to hit that date. Those, those are the issues. Uh, and it therefore suggests, you know, it suggests to allies that, um, you know, that a, a, you know, a coalition that you're in, your most important, your dominant partner is not necessarily prepared to listen to you, is not prepared necessarily to, uh, you know, take advice to change their course. And if that's the case, you know, can you trust them, frankly? Because if you can't engage in a, uh, in, in, in a negotiation, you as the junior partners are always going to be um, information and decision takers. And that's a very difficult position to be in. So, you know, who, who does well out of this? The cause of European defence does very well out of this, because if you are President Macron, you're going to be going around saying, ultimately, you know, we, you may all be in, we may all be in NATO, but you cannot trust the US to um, uh, to, to support Europe in your hour of need. We, Europe, have individually and collectively got to spend more money. And by the way, don't spend it on US equipment because they won't support it when, uh, you know, when, when, when the chips are down. Uh, they, they'll just leave you with stuff that is hopefully junk, but certainly it's going to get captured by your opponents. Just on that point, I thought it was interesting. I was going through some stuff in my office um, and I uh, found an old uh, Rafale brochure and the, the word on the cover was independence. And then the word on the second page was independence, independence right? Um, you, you don't want to end up getting caught up with American gear is, is, is the message that some will be selling. Going to be a very powerful sales pitch for a bit, isn't it? Exactly so. Um, Richard, uh, let me bring you into the conversation at this point. Um, you know, give, give us your thoughts on how does this affect and impact the reliability uh, of the United States and, and how to factor that. I mean, I have to say, uh, you know, D Donald Trump was very, very rough with allies, uh, but didn't quite catch them out to this extent with forces that are trapped and their nationals are trapped. And we have the kind of unfolding uh, situation that we have right now, right? I mean, each nation who was there also was working with Afghans who they were trying to rescue uh, at, at the end of the day. You know, we had Dominic Robb reach out, right? Boris Johnson is, is chairing the G7 uh, and said, hey, you know, Dominic Robb, I think today, correct me if I'm wrong, um, Sash uh, said, however distasteful, we have to bring China and Russia into it now because we're all out and and they have proximity. Um, also give us your views, Richard, on how the mountains of military equipment, right? I mean, what about past wars the United States has failed and abandoned equipment? What that's meant, uh, because you've drawn some lessons, uh, given that sadly it's, it's happened entirely too much in the last half century, one would argue. Yeah, well, lots to discuss. You know, a couple of things. First of all, I think that despite the enormity of the human tragedy here, and uh, frankly, also I'll agree with you on the, the bungling and ineptitude of the way this withdrawal was executed by the Biden administration, there may be less here than meets the eye. You know, at, at the end of the day, yes, it, U.S.-European-NATO relations will probably take a blow. My goodness, the French are using this to sell their products. Uh, that's a shock. It's, um, it's how many decades of that? And 
sure enough, they've always done a really good job selling their platforms on the basis of independence and the unreliability of the U.S. That you just described French weapons sales policies and foreign policies in the Middle East and the subcontinent of India for the past hmm, half century. Nothing new there at all. Britain, yeah, I mean, I obviously the special relationship, very important. I would have thought that the catastrophic or second order and primary order effects as a consequence of the Iraq invasion were far worse, both for you at the U.S.'s standing among allied countries, particularly Britain. Obviously, Tony Blair's legacy took a bit of a hammering as a consequence of that. Long-term fallout for the U.S. and U.K., I hard to really gauge. I, this doesn't seem nearly as bad as that. That was far more catastrophic. Uh, so I, I think there's right now an understandable feeling of, oh, my God, this is strategically terrible. No, it's humanitarian terrible. It's an execution black eye for the Biden administration. Beyond that, I'm reluctant to read anything into it. Similarly, there's a lot of, frankly, madness about what was left behind in Afghanistan. You know, I mean, I, whether it was a pact by the well, the Bush administration, the Biden administration, the Trump administration, and the Obama administration did not sell them anything more with an effective combat radius of a couple hundred miles, or whether that was just serendipitous because that, that met the requirements of the Afghan military just fine. There's nothing expeditionary, nothing high tech. Yes, there are some Scan Eagle UAVs that they will try to figure out. And frankly, they could probably have replicated if they had the skills by buying stuff on the open market. The rest, you've got older model Blackhawks, the high-tech wonder that is the Super Tucano turboprop trainer. It sounds like a lot of planes made it to Uzbekistan and elsewhere, but the stuff they have left, they might or might not be useful in causing trouble, uh, say, against, uh, well, Russia, Pakistan, Iran, China. Good luck with that. <laughs> I, I, there's absolutely nothing here that they couldn't have purchased on the arms market uh, somewhere. Nothing at all high tech. Now, comparisons, yes, very important. Um, Vietnam, of course, left behind a lot of jet fighters, uh, a lot more helicopters. None of it really came to anything. Obviously, the fact that, you know, within a few years, the Vietnamese were at war with China and after a few years beyond that turned into something of a market economy or something resembling it meant it was all quite irrelevant. Iran is more troubling. Looking back uh, to 79 and what was left behind there, the F-14 was truly at the, at the time, of course, a masterpiece of Cold War engineering, uh, remarkably capable jet. They had 78 of them. And they were the only export customer. The Shah only purchased the very best. And for decades on, the couple dozen they were able to keep in service through cannibalization really did have an impact on the, well, the threat in the Persian Gulf because, of course, of the AWG-9 weapons radars mounted in these things. They were effectively kind of like mobile mini AWACS, you know, just <laughs> that's a real problem. There's nothing like that here. Again, it's Super Gagano's early model Blackhawks, a lot of rifles, a lot of, well, a lot of MRAPs. Um, the idea that the U.S. would care about this, aside from, you know, the economic effect of losing a bunch of guns is, is just kind of, it's just cloud cuckoo land, frankly. So again, getting back to my theme, humanitarian disaster, real black eye for the administration strategically. No, nothing here to see. Well, I was one of the people who think who thought that we should have um, a, a 
continuing mission there. Uh, and I think that one of the misnomers is that this was a 20-year mission. Um, that's kind of the bumper sticker, but the reality is that the surge really began uh, in 2010 um, uh, after the Obama administration came into, the, uh, came into office, late 2009-2010, uh, and then ran for a couple of years. And with a few thousand Americans there and a few thousand uh, of our allies there, um, I think it would have gone a long way in keeping um, the the Afghan government in power long enough for it. You know, I mean, as as a very good friend pointed out uh, to me yesterday, he was like, wait a minute, don't American governors get indicted and sent to jail, too? I mean, it's not like we don't have corruption either uh, in, in this country. We just happen to serve. You know, it's, it's not existential when it happens where it's somewhat of a, of a bigger problem when obviously it happens in Afghanistan. Um, you know, so and so the question is. Right. Does terrorism end up coming back? And did we just spend trillions of dollars only to end up back at at square one uh, in 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 some fashion? Um, I want to go to. Yeah, yes. Uh, and yes. Yeah, yes. So and, you're, and you're I'd also like to make a quick comment, too. If I Hold may, on a second. Hold on. Let's Sash, let's. All right. So yes and yes. Go, go on, Sash. And then, Richard, I'll give you an opportunity to counter. And then, Ron, if you want to jump in on this before we, we move on uh, to the commercial market, go ahead. Sash. Afghanistan has gone from being a deeply flawed, very, very tribal, very, very sectarian state, but, you know, one that, you know, didn't do a great deal of harm internationally to being, um, we don't know whether it's yet a failed state, but it's sure as hell a hostile state uh, to us in the West and to, you know, most of our beliefs, to argue uh, that it will not, therefore, at some stage, be favourable to harbouring terrorism that will hurt us would be utterly naive. Uh, and, uh, you know, I just don't, you know, I, I think that's the, the really sad. And if that is the case, then we've spent a hell of a lot of money in the last 20 years. It's bought us time. It's clearly bought us, you know, 20, 20 years of peace from an external threat, very, very high cost. A lot of that will have been wasted uh, if terrorism uh, recurs again, unfortunately. Do you think that we fight this successfully from afar? without necessarily being in Afghanistan, because if you look at counterterror operations that our countries are doing, we are actively engaged worldwide on a regular basis. And that's the White House's argument. We know how to fight this in a way that doesn't necessarily have us with thousands of people on the ground. How do you how do you we didn't have thousands of people on the ground in Afghanistan? We had we you America had a few thousand uh, advisors on the ground in Afghanistan by the end. That's the real sadness about this. This was a very, very low touch, very, uh, you know, low commitment um, war, you know, right up to the moment when uh, the decision was making, made for us to leave. Clearly it was not 10 years ago, but it, it certainly was uh, at the beginning of uh, 2021. And that, but that combination of um, some combat forces, but many, many more advisors and enablers uh, is the formula that seems to work best in very, very big, complex terrains where you are up against a sophisticated and in some cases multifaceted com um, uh, te terrorist stroke, near, you know, parasitic uh, opponent. I think the interesting thing is, can you do it from, can you do it from afar? I, can we just bomb them? No, we're always going to miss the stuff that, that, uh, that matters. That's uh, the sense that a lot of special operators will tell you this was problematic when a lot of us were on the ground. It's going to be much, much harder uh, when we are uh, not 
uh, on the ground. Although I will point out the reason there were no casualties was the Doha, uh, February 2020 Doha agreement, which would have had us pull out on on, on May the 1st. Um, Richard, I know you want to weigh in on this. Uh, and then, uh, Ron, I want to give you an opportunity as well. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, thanks, Parker. Just three quick points. You know, one agreement with Sash, of course, it's going to be irresistible given the tribalism and sectarianism and, well, potential for conflict in Afghanistan for everyone to not fight a proxy war in Afghanistan. So again, the humanitarian catastrophe will be worsened by years of intra-country warfare. But unfortunately, that's been the way it's been in Afghanistan for quite some time. Second point, re-corruption. Yeah, of course, there's corruption in the U.S. Does it ever affect the military in any meaningful way? No, certainly not. Our military is, I think, quite free virtually free of corruption, especially when it fights wars. Whereas Afghanistan, you saw the same dismal pattern as we saw in South Vietnam. You know, you'd like an airstrike? Well, uh, here's the price list. You'd like an artillery barrage? Here's the price list. Yeah, it, corruption actually did impact the fighting capabilities of the armed forces. That doesn't really happen in the U.S. And then the third point, you know, it's a pivot to Asia. That is, we've correctly recognized that China is a far bigger strategic priority than the horrors of Afghanistan. Again, getting back to Vietnam, you get people who were, you know, we should have done more, we should have done this, we should have gotten out earlier. You know, there was a big problem in, with the Soviet Union in Europe. We were neglecting it. It was a strategic diversion, I would argue, beyond a certain point, to be in Vietnam. And we unfortunately compounded it by cutting defense after Vietnam, but we're not doing that here. We're increasing the defense budget, particularly the RDT&E component that's essential for long-term competition with China. This is genuinely a pivot and a reallocation of strategic resources, and I think it deserves to be looked at in, in that context. Ron, anything you want to add? Yeah, I, I would say this. I think the piece that that I'm thinking about is, is what I brought up before. I mean, really, what does this mean for broader U.S.-China relations? Um, you know, will you know Afghanistan become another country that kind of falls in line with the Belt and Road Initiative? Um, how will and you've already seen it in the Chinese state-run press? How will they use this to China's advantage to try to? Uh, manipulate perceptions of the U.S., the U.S. being weak, the U.S. fumbling. You know, so ultimately, what does it mean uh, in the end, if anything, for U.S.-China relations? I, th I think that's probably one of the things I'm keeping an eye on. I wouldn't be surprised to see, um, you know, I'll come out and say this, if you, if you look out over the next months and quarters, if uh, China becomes a little more aggressive and muscular in the South China Sea. So we'll see how that plays out. And, and I think that's that's what I'm that's what I'm looking at. Uh, maybe worried about, and that most certainly probably would have implications for the U.S. defense sector. Uh, it, it's certainly going to be interesting because obviously the Chinese have been coming alongside the Taliban despite their uh, oppression of, of uh, Uyghurs. So that makes interesting bedfellows. Obviously, the United States no longer in Bagram uh, Air Base, uh, which was another uh, right. I mean, the Turks are in in control of that. Uh, now, I mean, it's 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 really going to be interesting to see how Russia uh, and China uh, exert themselves there. All right. Uh, I, I can't remember, Vaga, whose side are the Turks on at the moment? Um, well, well I, I don't know. That's a that's a strategically interesting question. I mean, one would imagine that 
Turkey is on the side of Turkey. Yeah. Okay. No, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, I I think as every great power is right. I mean, it has location, 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 location. Um, You know, it, it is, it is a, uh, a member of NATO. Um, It, it, assumed many of the jobs that uh, British officers, uh, right? I mean, I, I recall uh, at a time when there was all that criticism of why does the United Kingdom have all these, you know, admirals and generals? The reason it had those admirals and generals was to fill all manner of staff jobs across every important alliance in the world, putting Britain at the very center of all of them. Uh, and unfortunately, those were reduced and Turkey was more than happy to fill them in a NATO context. So it's, it's going to be uh, certainly very interesting going forward. L- let's shift the discussion to um, uh, the uh, business side of things uh, at, at this point. Um, Ron, start us off. Air, air travel uh, is uh, softening uh, in the United States. Uh, it's softening in Europe. Uh, Sasha's uh, colleague, Nick Cunningham, did a great report looking at that. We've been talking about the Chinese mar- market softening for some time. How long does this last? Is this going to be like um, last down, you know, past downturns that we've seen, right? I mean, the, the market's gone up and down and up and down, and, and now we're kind of in a down cycle potentially again. And what does it mean for the whole ecosystem, uh, right? I mean, does it, does it cause any of the makers to change their forecasts uh, at all uh, and change airlines, right? I mean, the airlines are surging to try to hire as quickly as they can, and now all of a sudden things are softening again. I mean, walk, walk us through what this means for the whole ecosystem, and let's go around the horn with all of you. Yeah, I mean, just a couple points, right? I mean, that really is the multi-trillion-dollar question, right? Like, what, what, how does this recovery ultimately play out? And um, you know, like everybody knows, and I think it's easy to forget. I mean, we haven't been through one of these, right? I mean, the last time the world saw something like this was what 1918. So um, the the ramifications economically, um, probably, honestly, um, in my humble opinion, are not all that well understood. So we'll have to see how it plays out. And it gets complicated because everybody has to become ultimately a bit of a an armchair epidemiologist. Uh, just to to you know paraphrase Richard, what he said many 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 months ago. You know, ultimately, it's all up to the virus, right? I mean, you know, being a virus fundamentalist, and you know, the 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 Delta variant, and you know, just right, A B C D, and so there's probably going to be E F G, whatever else. Um, you know, yeah, L- Lambda, I think, is the, is the next big one, apparently. Right, but. Hopefully, the, hopefully there's not a giga uh, uh, one. Anyway, um, the, you know, it, it has a vote, too, and how this all plays out. And you, you, in a presentation I give to investors, um, in my last slide is just, you know, the slide of the traffic recovery in India. Just a little reminder that things are, are a bit fragile. Uh, I think it's too soon to say that, you know, the, the OEMs or folks are going to have to start changing production schedules and airlines are going to have to start changing things. But I, I do think it's something to keep an eye on. Uh, more broadly, there are, um, you know, conversations in the market worrying about what will growth look like next year? Have we seen a peak in growth? Um, as, you know, as we go into next year, you know, particularly in the U.S. and presumably in other countries, um, you don't get, uh, you know, the, the fourth um, stimulus payment, right? So what does that mean for retail sales? What does that mean for the broader economy? So do we move into a phase where, you know, growth normalizes back to, normalizes back to normal levels? There's no better way to phrase it. Um, right. Com- com- coming off very high levels, but in the backdrop of a more fragile economy with, you know, virus variants floating around. And, 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 and I think ultimately the, the market's trying to digest that as we speak. Sash, uh, your sense, you just uh, took a trip and uh, 
your destination was very enjoyable. You got a chance to see family, uh, hang out at a pool, enjoy some warm weather, but it was also a catastrophic pain in the butt, wasn't it? Uh, we 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 went for our week's vacation to uh, Italy, flew into Rome, flew out of Florence, uh, and it's you know flying in Europe, uh, and you know it may just you know there, there may be a sort of Brexit repercussion from this, but you know flying as a Brit in Europe, it, it is hard work. Um, you know for for what is a sub two hour flight. We ended up having to wear a mask for uh, for five and a half hours, including um, time in the terminal, ground transportation, and so forth. So you know that's a. I personally don't, don't terribly enjoy that, but the, the, the there's no um, going through the you know cutting things fine as we've all done on business trips. You know, turn, turning up at the terminal 40 minutes before or something. Oh no, you know you have to check in in the old-fashioned way. You have to get your documents checked, uh, and and in the case of your documents checked, you know it's not only uh, your um, your uh, proof of vaccination, but it's also your proof that you've had a COVID test in the last two days, and it's your proof that you've got another COVID test, um, you know, two days after you land. Uh, and so the, the check-in process takes, I reckon, about 10 minutes per person. Um, the, the, the queues are long. And here's just a quite interesting uh, anecdote, which is that some countries in Europe insist that you have to go into quarantine for five days when you have landed and hence you cannot fly out before five days unless you know unless you are actually an exempt businessman interestingly but you know this is the sort of thing that is going to cause the um uh, you know the stag weekends the hen weekends uh which typically take place somewhere in eastern europe in you know autumn whatever it's going to make this much harder because you're going to have to commit the full five days rather than just flying out on a friday night flying back horrendously hungover on a uh, on a Sunday uh, evening. And I think that the, the low-cost carriers, you know, Wizz Air has been one of the most impressive recovery plays uh, this year. Um, and Wizz Air is a, an Eastern European-based low-cost carrier, very, very successful indeed. But actually, the IAG subsidiary, Vueling, uh, has done very, very well as well. Ryanair, yep, absolutely. Um, but I think the low-cost carriers are going to find it harder to drum up the traffic as we go through Q3 and into Q4, because their traffic is almost entirely leisure, although there's a, there's a degree of VFR, visiting friends and relations as well, particularly for Wizz Air. But I think they're going to be the ones who are going to find it really hard uh, come the fall. So I, um, we're going to be watching them very, very closely indeed. But, you know, my personal view was, tra- you know, air travel today was just nowhere near as much fun as it was two years ago. So, Richard, what are some of the broader impacts, right? I mean, we've, we've heard about what it is we think will happen. What does this mean for the ecosystem? I mean, because, Sash, I will point out, there are, there are some, place, some uh, destinations that actually will be very happy that Brits are not coming uh, to their place. Of course, then again, they're also not spending the money. So at the end of the day, uh, that's that's what it's all yeah, about. Yeah, so I'll right? go. I mean, I mean, listen, they may not like us, but money money talks. Money yeah, always it, talks. It, yes, it, 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 exactly. And and thankfully, you're a people imbued with an ability to uh, to hold some drink uh, in you um, with, without getting too problematic there. Uh, Richard, um, you know, what's, what's the impact more broadly on the ecosystem? Uh, and at what point do... The com- you know, I mean, is there an impact on the ecosystem or are makers and airlines and everybody going to just stick stick to the plan they've got? Where, where, well, where do we go? Yeah, I mean, 
at the end of the day, airlines, uh, of course, make exactly the same sort of bet that, uh, well, Ron and Sasha's investors make. You know, they looked at the, the set of facts out there and say, OK, what's the scope of the recovery look like and how should we equip for it or purchase for it or whatever else? And uh, so far, you know, I mean, orders and rate plans are still heading up. In other words, people are saying this Delta thing, the 10 week story, we're still going to get back on track for recovery. We need to think about new jets and expanding, particularly for domestic markets. Um, I'm not terribly concerned uh, that that's going to change, but I think the arrival of Delta shows us that it sure might. And what it does, I think the risk and the dangers of a double dip uh, are, are particularly awful. I'm going to be spending this week flying uh, various places in the American Midwest talking with suppliers. And the one thing that most of them have in common is that they got through this crisis by any means necessary, but by the skin of their teeth. And, you know, I mean, whether it was obviously furloughs and layoffs and selling everything that wasn't nailed down, you know, filling up their their revolver, tons of debt, you know, just getting access to capital any way they can, taking advantage of every government uh, bailout program there was, they got through it. Uh, now, what happens if the upward momentum for production rates and, of course, orders for their components gets derailed by a double dip? Uh, just because they got through it during the last 18 months doesn't mean they can handle it again, particularly given the debt loads and whatever else. So I think we've got a fragile situation out there. And I'm very concerned from a supplier perspective, uh, well, from me looking at the suppliers, what will happen in the event that this looks like this turns out to be worse than we have seen so far. Uh, Ron, are you as concerned as Richard uh, and Sash are? Yeah, yeah, definitely, for sure. Um, and, you know, the, I think one of the points that Richard made uh, that's right on is we didn't see many bankruptcies or anything in the supply chain, right? So, right. you know, the supply chain really did kind of get through this through uh, help from, you know, to, I think, you know, First and foremost, the DOD was helpful in ways it could be with suppliers that had exposure to them. Um, the U.S. government helped out. Um, you know, several of the companies we follow who tend to be acquisitive. Um, one in particular um, was pretty vocal about you know companies that should have had more stress didn't, and as a result, we couldn't acquire them. Not to paraphrase, um, we could get into a period where we could see um, um, more stress in the supply chain. I, I know for one, you know, back to an event that, you know, Richard and I did with you, you know, Kevin Michaels, you know, kind of foremost, foremost expert, expert on the supply chain. One of his worries is not to speak for him, but I'll just paraphrase was that, um, you know, in this, in the, in the upcoming 12 to 18 months that you could actually see some more stress in the supply chain as maybe some of the, uh, the, the, the safety things out there uh, become, um, uh, less available. Uh, it's it's certainly going to be very interesting uh, to watch. Uh, uh, any uh, update, uh, Ron? You want to give us the update on seven thirty seven and where we stand? Right, I mean flights were resuming. I think in India, China's uh, looking at it. Any sort of update on the platform? And then, Sash, I'm going to go to you and get uh, sort of a UK uh, aerospace update because you upgraded roles. So that's that's a joyous day after decades, right? But uh, uh, Ron, start there's, us off. There, there's really not a heck of a lot to say on the seven three seven right now. Um, a 737-7 MAX flew to China. I think there was a lot of speculation that it was going to be part of some broader flight test pro program, but then it promptly turned around and came back. So right. uh, it's a little bit of a mystery what, what happened there other than they went for a really long flight. Um, uh, outside of that, you know, the news flow on the program uh, in, in the last week has been pretty quiet. Uh, 
Sash, uh, talk to us. UK Defense Ultra, uh, you know, uh, was was a big story. Megat was uh, a big story. Uh, and of course, uh, your dun 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 upgrade of, of roles. Walk us through uh, UK Defense and Aerospace. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, UK Defence Aerospace. I mean, you know, this is UK quoted companies clearly because all these companies have got very, very large international, predominantly US uh, businesses. But um, it, it's very unusual for us to have two UK uh, defence and aerospace companies being bid for uh, at the same time. Um, Ultra is being bid for by a uh, private equity company, Advent. They're doing it through their um the cobham business that they bought uh, a couple of years back but frankly they're doing that because it, it makes it look better that's pure window dressing this is a private equity bid for uh, for ultra um megit by comparison is being bid for by the u.s industrial company parker hannafin and now transdime uh also a, a u.s company although with the unfortunate tagline you know private equity um uh, characteristics or style or something like that is also busy bidding for it. And this is causing what is normally a very, very laissez-faire uh, UK government an immense amount of stress. My bet would be, our bet would be that um, Megit will be waved through because Megit is predominantly a, uh, a civil aerospace company, it's predominantly uh, US-based, there is less uh, about negates that is uh, of concern to the UK defence industrial base. But ultra, that is, uh, I think that is a very, very difficult situation for the UK, even though less than a third of ultra's uh, turnover is uh, UK based. What they do in the UK, which is predominantly anti-submarine warfare, sonars, processors, uh, and they are phenomenally good at that. Sonoboys, they are, you know, one of the world's leaders in Sonoboys, um, as well as a, a whole ton of very, very specialist electrical and electronic stuff, especially for submarines. I think the UK government is going to um, ban this bid, partly because Advent, when they bid for Cobham, said that they would, you know, do all the right things. And frankly, haven't. They've just broken it up and sold it off because they're private equity. And that's what private equity does. Right. But you can't trust them. And certainly, if you're the UK government, you can't trust them. And partly because you've got to draw, draw a line in the sand somewhere. And what Ultra does genuinely affects the defense of the United Kingdom. Um, uh, there's nothing more sensitive than uh, submarines and ASW, uh, in, in, in our view. And I think a UK government that hates making difficult decisions like this and hates doing things that damage free, their free market credentials and hates doing things that actually upsets the US is going to is going to uh, come around to that. So that's going to be a very, very interesting uh, situation indeed. Um, switching then to a sort of more civil aerospace, Rolls-Royce, I mean, this is just very interesting. My colleague, Nick Cunningham, um, has been covering this uh, stock since it's been quoted in 1986. Um, and uh, we upgraded Rolls-Royce to a buy for the first time in 30 years. Now, our critics, oh there, 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 are, there are many, will say we missed some fantastic upcycles. Yep, we did, but we thought that the Rolls business case was uh, fundamentally very, very weakly based and that the company was trading on promise but not actually able to deliver. Um, the stock's down uh, you know, more than two-thirds, uh, two in fact, nearly 70%. Uh, than it was uh, two years ago. So we're feeling pretty vindicated on that. And what you now have is a stock which has got a balance between civil aerospace, civil aero engines, big Trent engines, and then uh, defense, uh, military and uh, military aircraft and ship engines, power systems, 
uh, and um, the civil aftermarket. And, and because it's got that balance and because it's done a very, very big recapitalization, they had an enormous rights issue uh, last year, uh, new debt facilities, no maturities for 2024. We are more relaxed about liquidity, the, the ability of the company to trade through some tough times than, than, than we have been before. So, you know, uh, this is a recognition that everything has a price. Every risk has a price. There's plenty of risks with Rolls-Royce, but actually they, they have dealt with the major ones and the civil market will recover eventually. Our, our view and the basis of our forecast is it won't recover till, you know, probably 2024 in terms of large civil engine flight hours, because they're going to be the last things to recover. But if they do that, this is a stock that starts to look uh, cheap in terms of uh, earnings multiples, probably even cheaper in terms of cash flow. So, you know, very. I, I mean, my colleague Nick is an incredibly cautious, conservative person who considers, you know, all the risks and then some. Uh, so, you know, it's we're we're we're, we're very very, um, you know, we're 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 very very pleased indeed to actually be able to to look at Rolls Royce afresh. Uh, and I should point out for our audience, um, the extraordinary role Ultra plays as a technology de uh, developer once. Uh, the uh, British version of DARPA, DERA, uh, was privatized and then, you know, became kinetic and, and got into its own private equity challenges, right? It's going to be very interesting to watch what the government does on this, given, as, as you said, right? I mean, it, it's not just the programs it does. Ultra has an extraordinary ability to sort of look at really game-changing approaches to things. And so that's, um, it's going to be utterly fascinating to watch that. Um, uh, Richard, um, Skyborg, what's the news? Why should we care? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, Kratos, of course, one of the leading possible players in Skyborg took a bit of a hit when it was revealed that it's not a program of record yet. It might not be till uh, FY23 or beyond. And, you know, this has always seemed like one of those things where the, well, the court, the court, the court was getting just a bit ahead of the horse here. Great idea. Absolutely essential. You can make an argument to have loyal wingmen or some other adjunct uh, programs for fighter aircraft to uh, redress the numerical imbalance, uh, given the U.S.'s position in the Western Pacific. You know, technologically, definitely the future, but we might have had unrealistic expectations here in terms of when this can actually play out, both for technological reasons and for operational and doctrinal reasons, because you know, we don't really know what the thing looks like. I mean, right. it, it could be gremlins, you know, lots of little swarms of things, or it could be loyal wingmen that are like half-sized jet fighters or loyal wingmen that are, you know, basically kind of drones, two or three per fighter. We have no idea. So the idea of saying, ah, that air vehicle is clearly in the lead or this approach is definitely the right one. We just don't know. And it might be another decade before we know. These things are easy to overstate in terms of technological and operational maturation. All right, guys, uh, that's all the time we've got uh, this week. Thanks so very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Have a great week uh, and looking forward to having you back on again next weekend. Thanks a lot. Uh, thanks a lot, Vago. Looking forward to it. Yeah, looking forward to it, Vago. Thanks so much. Always great to be on, Vago. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. 
Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.